If you would like to borrow a Bible, would you mind raising your hand and the ushers will bring you a Bible. You can follow along this morning and you can just put the Bible in the pew when we are done here. Hey, in about two weeks from today, we're going to do something called Together for the Gospel World Cup. Now, for those of you who are new, you're thinking, what's this all about? We've been doing things with uh, our sister church of ours, uh, Congolese brothers and sisters from uh, Democratic Republic of Congo in Africa for the past three to four years. We've done services together. We've done meals together. But this time, we're going to play soccer together, and they are going to cream us. <laughs> it's going to be us against them. So if you're, uh, if you're any good at soccer, we could use you to just be somewhat respectable out there, uh, the 15th. But we, we like to have everybody there because we're going to eat. We're going to hang out. We're just going to have fun. Uh, we're really close with them. They mean a lot to us as a church. And I just want to encourage you to be there two weeks from today. All right. hope you have a Bible by now. Uh, you want to turn to First John. It's near the back of the Bible. If you can't find it, look on someone next to you. But First John, we're going to be in chapter, in the very, cha- in the very end of chapter 2 today, in verse 28, starting there. And just, just to remind us of what we are holding in our hand, that the God of the universe who sits on the throne has decided to communicate to us, let's stand, as I read this, out of respect for God's word. A good reminder, God is... Speaking to us, amazing. First John, chapter 2, starting in verse 28. Let me read. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. You may be seated.
I learned a new phrase this week from a man named Paul Tripp. And the phrase is the nowism of the gospel. The nowism of the gospel. He explains the phrase as he tells a story about a young man. Sounds like a young single man. And, and the guy's name is Jason. And I kid you not, it is not me. Because if it was me, I would use someone else's name. Or I would not use my own name. So maybe you can relate to this counseling situation of this Jason, not me. This is what he says about Jason. He says, Jason sat in front of me with head down, humped shoulders of posture and a confused, and he was a disappointed man. It wasn't that Jason's life had been a sad narrative of personal suffering. I mean, sure, he had faced some hard things, but they're the, they're the typical things you would face when you're living in a fallen world surrounded by sin. And it wasn't that Jason was alienated or friendless. He was surrounded by a group of less than perfect but pretty faithful companions. It wasn't that Jason was impoverished or homeless. No. He had a decent job and an adequate condo. Jason's problem was that he was lost in the middle of his own faith. It had become harder and harder for him to connect the beauty of what he believed to the gritty and often difficult realities of his daily life. Jason's problem was that he carried a gospel around with him that had a great big hole right in the middle of it. Jason could explain to you what it meant to say that he was saved by grace and he knew that he was going to spend eternity with his Savior, but his problem was here. And now, day after day, situation after situation, relationship after relationship, he didn't carry around with him a vibrant and practical sense of the nowism of the grace of Jesus Christ. Yeah, he, he believed in life after death, but he desperately needed to understand life before death. The kind of radical life you will live when you understand what Christ has given you for the, Christ, for the life he has called you to right here, right now. The nowism of the gospel is a good description of our need as we live in between the two comings of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has come about 2,000 years ago as he laid his life down for sinners, and he will come one day in the future in his second return. But what do we do now? What does that have to do with us now? How do we live in the nowism of the gospel? I mean, it, it makes sense for all of us. We want to know that because we all face the realities of having gaps in our faith, big holes in the middle of our gospel being lost in the middle of our faith. It's, that's something we all experience. And, and we really feel it when difficult things come, when challenges come our way. What does it mean to live in the gospel right now? It's very helpful that what we're studying today is a church that felt a lot, a lot of the same things. And John sees it. He sees a church that is bombarded with heretics, with false doctrine, 
with a lack of love, lots of worldliness, and those who are remaining faithful are like, how do we live and follow Jesus now? We know what he's done. We know he's coming. But what does it mean to live in the nowism of the gospel, to have the relevance of the gospel in our lives right now? And so John writes to them. And he writes to encourage them. He enters the mess. And he says, look, hold on. Let me give you some confidence. Let me encourage you to pursue holiness. Let me give you the gospel now. And the way he does that, he talks about the two comings of Jesus. His first coming and his second coming and how we live in the gospel now. So let's start off by looking at the second coming of Jesus because that's where John starts. We'll start where he starts. Let's look at the now is in the gospel and the second coming of Jesus. Look at verse 28. And now little children. John loves this church. Isn't that great? Little children. Abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. John has been arguing that believers need to abide in Jesus. That means continue believing in him. That means do not move on from Jesus. Do not search for an upgrade in another Jesus as the heretics were doing. They need it to abide in Jesus, continue in Jesus. And so much more in light of his second coming. So he says, abide in in Jesus, and look what he says in verse 28, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. There will only be two reactions at the coming of Jesus Christ. Those who stand with poise and confidence, like, yes, praise Jesus, he is here, and those who shrink back and shame. Now, maybe when you see verses like this, you think that these verses are supposed to scare believers. Like, like John is saying to you, you should have never gone to see the Bon Jovi concert last night. Jesus could have come back when you were singing, living on a prayer, and you would have been so ashamed. You think that's what, you know, you're supposed to feel all disturbed within you? Oh! No, it's, these are not meant to scare you. He's speaking here to the heretics. They're the ones that are going to shrink back in shame as they have not loved people within the church, as they have doctrinally thrown Jesus out, as they are pursuing worldliness with all they have. And he's saying, look, I have much more confidence in the believers that when he comes you will stand with confidence. And you kind of wonder, well, how can this church be so confident? How can they have such confidence at the return of Jesus? Well, look what he says. Verse 3. Verse 1 of chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. John, he, John is just amazed. He's like, let me tell you how you can have this confidence. You can have confidence because you are a child of God. John is like just stirred up. He's like, guess what? God has called you his child. 
He loves you so much that he has adopted you into his family. It is unmerited grace. It is an unmerited adoption. You did not earn it. He loves you. And he's lavish loved on you so much. He has brought you in. He has no intentions of ever unadopting you. He loves you through Jesus Christ. You can stand as a confident person at his second coming because you are a child of God. And yet I'm sure we wonder, as John's church has been wondering, that if God loves me so much, then, then why do I have problems? Why are things falling apart? John's church is wondering, why are the heretics here? I mean, if this is a, a great gospel of love, and if God loves me, then why do I have problems? If I have problems, maybe he, he doesn't love me. And, and I'm sure that you have said that probably within the last month. If God is in control of my life, if God loves me so much, then why is this happening? Yeah? Are you with me? Yeah, I'm sure a lot of us have thought that. Why does this happen if he loves me? But, But the reality is, we live in a fallen world, and we can have just as many problems as people living right next door to us who don't know Jesus. In fact, we can have more problems in this world than they would have because they don't know us. They don't know the Father. We can have just as much, if not more, problems. But the reality is, get this, God still loves you. You're still his child. And someday, very soon, I know it doesn't seem very soon, but someday soon, we will be with Jesus. And so that's the encouragement he gives. Look at verse 2. Beloved, look at, we are God's children. Oh, you, if you'd like to circle your Bible, circle that word now. We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. John's really trying to give this church confidence. He wants them to have confidence that they are God's children right now. And even though the world is filled with pain and even though there's a lot of suffering, they're still God's children. I can say the same to you. You're still God's child. You've repented. You've trusted in Christ. You were loved. You're accepted by the Father. And there is coming a day when Jesus will appear. And when Jesus appears, we will be like him. For we shall see him in his fullness. We strive to be like him now by the power of his spirit. But one day there's going to be this transformation. Jesus is going to come back. We're going to see him. And we're going to be like him in the fullness. And that is absolutely amazing. But the nowism of the gospel is, if you're a child of God, and you know Jesus is coming back, then there's a certain way we live now. Not just with confidence, but also holiness. Look at verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So since our hope is in Jesus and we anticipate he's coming back, we want to live a life of holiness now. I really think that's what confidence does. We have confidence that we're his children. We know Jesus is going to come back. We're going to be like him. So now we want to live this life of holiness, righteousness, 
right now. That means we want to arrange our whole lives so that they center on the second coming of Jesus Christ. We want to walk and pursue him so much when he comes back, we have this poise, this confidence that we are going to be with him and be like him. We alter and change our lives now. It's like, it's like if you knew this Christmas you're going to get a big bonus at work. Let's say the bonus at Christmas is going to be five times the amount of money you make right now. And I know some of you don't make anything right now. So just picture that you have a job and you're making a lot. So five times the amount that you currently make. What would you do on August 1st knowing that in December you're going to get five times your amount? What would you do? You would alter, change a lot of things, right? You would make plans on how you're going to spend five times the amount of your current salary. You would, you would make these, these changes. And that's the concept with Jesus coming back. We alter our lives and live in line and in light of the second coming. I mean, you've got to admit, most of us don't even think about Jesus coming back. We're like, he hasn't come back for 2,000 years. There's no way he's going to come back August 1st, 2010. No way. And so we just continue on with our lives. We make decisions. We live our lives, which we should. But a lot of times we ignore the second coming of Jesus. And what John is saying is like, no, he's coming back. And it's not something you need to shrink back from in fear. You need to have confidence, but you also need to arrange your life now to live in line of his second coming. Now, I know I lost a few of you back there when I started talking about Bon Jovi, and, and now you're wondering, so should I or should I not go to Bon Jovi concert? I know some of that, I lost you back there, all right? So catch up, just in case you like that music, and you're thinking, if Jesus is coming back, should I go to a Bon Jovi concert? And you want me to give you permission or not to permission. And, and so what we do in this world is that we make decisions, now, if you choose to go to Bon Jovi because you love uh, just the artistic creativity of the big hair of the 80s and you want to go back to your childhood and you make that decision that that's between you and God. But, but the reality is I think that many of us don't even ask the question of how we should live our lives if Jesus is coming back. It's like we don't even run our decisions through that grid. We're just, just, we're just moving on. We're just doing our thing and he's coming back. He's coming. I don't know if he's coming back, but we don't even consider it. And John's saying, look, live your lives now through the grid that you are a child loved by the Father and Jesus is coming back. The now is in the gospel impacts your life now. You're a child of God now. He's coming back for you soon. Alter your lives. Change your heart now. So John's encouraging the church with the second coming. And now he shifts over to the first coming of Jesus. And some of these verses are probably some of the most difficult verses that may have challenged you in First John, may have actually scared you a bit. So we need to explain a little extra this morning. Uh, some of these verses, especially at the beginning of, of 4 through 6. So let's read verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning 
has either seen him or known him. All right, let's start off with the first appearance of Jesus. Okay, Jesus came the first time, and it says specifically he came to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So Jesus is a sinless one who died on the cross for sinners in the place of sinners as God's wrath was poured out on him. Three days later, he rose again, proof of he defeated the devil, he defeated death, and he defeated sin. Now, all those who repent and put their faith in Jesus Christ are forgiven. And not only are they forgiven, but now those who are forgiven pursue a life of holiness. And then look what it says again in verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Now, if you're not careful, you're going to think, yikes, that a life of holiness means sinless perfection. If you sin, you're not a Christian. Do you read it that way? If you have not been studying John and you just kind of jump in, you're going, oh, what that say? You've got to remember what John said in chapter 1. Look at chapter 1 again. We, we can't move away from chapter 1. Look what he said in chapter 1. He said the exact opposite. He railed against that attitude of sinless perfection in verse 8 of chapter 1. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, it's obvious John is not talking and envisioning this life of a Christian to be a life of sinlessness. No, we're people that say, yeah, we sin, and when we do, we confess, we repent, and we find forgiveness. So what do we make of chapter 3, verse 6? What do you make of chapter 3, verse 6, when he said, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Well, I think that what's going on here is John's talking about habitual sin. If you notice, it's people who make a practice, in verse 4, practice of sinning, or in verse 6, keeps on sinning. It's habitual, ongoing sin. Uh, many people have used the phrase of heinous rebellion, a corrupted inner character, a settled, prevailing, or ongoing self-endorsing habit, or it's a trend of life like these false teachers who deny the deity of Jesus Christ and they're habitually in sin doctrinally. It's like these false teachers who are habitually in sin relationally, hating one another in the church. It's these false teachers who are habitually in sin, pursuing worldliness and loving the world. That's the habitual sin over and over and over again. No care for Jesus, no care for God or his ways, just diving in, all in with sin. I think that's what John's saying. What about the Christian? What about the Christian? You still sin, right? I still sin. There's this guy, he's a pastor, Robert Rayburn. He, he said, you know what? We still sin, but we don't sin without conviction. When we sin, we don't like it. It ruins our days. It ruins our nights. 
Like, we can like it for a little bit. We can indulge in it for a little bit. But if we're truly a Christian, it's going to bother us. That's the thing with Christians. It should really bother us when we sin. And we can be really stirred up and, and be convic- convicted and have to go back to the Lord for forgiveness. It's like the prodigal son. When we go out, we think, I'm going to take my father's inheritance. I'm going to go out and I am going to party. And I'm going to indulge in all the immoralities and all the fun in the world. I'm going to invest in all this fun. But after a while, I realize, oh no, I'm eating pig slop. I've got to go back to dad. And you turn around and you go back and you say, Father, forgive me. And for the umpteenth time, bring out the robe. Put it on him. Let's throw a party. We're forgiven as Christians. We keep coming back to the Father for forgiveness. That's what Christians do. We keep coming back. We keep coming back. We keep coming back for forgiveness and grace. So Jesus, he came to deal with sin, which leads to a life of holiness But not only did he come to deal with sin in his first coming, but he also came to deal with the devil. Look at verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, oh boy, is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Well, there are only two groups of people on this earth, and we got into this more last week. There's not three groups of people on this earth. There's not one, but there are two. There are the children of the devil and the children of God. And how can you tell the distinction between the children of the devil and the children of God? Well, later on, he's going to talk about those who deny the DFT of Jesus are definitely the children of the devil. But here he is saying that those who are children of God not only acknowledge the deity of Jesus Christ, but they also love one another. And they pursue a life of righteousness, a life of holiness. You see that there? It's in verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And it's obvious that John is lumping in the heretics with the children of the devil, and he's lumping in the church with the children of God who pursue love and pursue holiness. Now, the holiness is only possible because in the first coming of Jesus, as he died upon the cross, he rendered Satan powerless and inoperative. He overthrew him. And it's not denying the present activity in the world of Satan's power and rank because Satan is loose in this world. But Satan, my brothers and sisters, you need to understand this, Satan no longer has authority over your life. He no longer has power over your life. He no longer has dominion over your life. He no longer has control over your life. Yes, he is very powerful, and yes, he is loose in this world, but not over you. Jesus came, dominated him, overthrew him at the cross. 
And so what John is saying, if that has happened, then as believers, you do not want to, you know that phrase, you do not want to dine with the devil. You ever heard that before? Dine with the devil. It's kind of a, a cartoonish type image that I get when I think about dining with the devil, like I'm going to send him an Evite. He's going to come over. We're going to hang out, have a meal together, get some drinks and have some dessert and play some video games. It's just really creepy to think about the devil coming over to my house. But when we sin, we're like, hey, you want to come over? You want to come hang out? I know that you've been dominated. I know that you've been crushed, but I want to invite you back for a little snack. And John's like, why would you do that? He's been dominated. Stay away from him. Jesus has nothing to do with sin. Jesus has nothing to do with the devil because he's crushed them. Those who follow Christ should say no to sin and no to the devil. That's what happened in its first coming on the cross. Now, I want you to listen as very closely as you can right now. Because I have something to tell you that is so good in this passage. Because if you're not careful, you will think that Jesus came, he conquered Satan, he conquered sin, I'm now a Christian, now I have to be a good boy. You've got to be a good girl. There's something in this passage that's going to just go against that, that theology of you better be just good now. Look at verse 28. Nine again of chapter 2 verse 29 of chapter 2 if you know that he is righteous you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him now look at chapter 3 look at verse what verse is it look at chapter 3 verse 8 verse 9 actually and before I read this, when I was memorizing 1 John, the most difficult verse that I have no idea why I could not memorize it was this verse right here. I have no idea. Well, I struggled with this verse so much. And, I've, and when I was reciting it before you on Sunday morning, I thought for sure I would blow this verse. And I was like, what's the problem with this verse? And I think it's because God really wants me to know it. Look at this verse, verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Oh, there's something in here that's just amazing. I really think it's saying the life of God, in our conversion, the life of God has been imparted to us. And the reference here is to God's seed. Maybe we could understand God's seed as God has taken up residence within us. His life has been parted to us as in the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And so those who have the Holy Spirit, God's seed abiding them, they won't go on sinning because they've been born of God. They've been born again. And so the idea is not that Jesus dealt with sin and Jesus dealt with Satan so that you better watch yourself, watch out for Satan and watch out for sin. It seems to be much deeper than that. Jesus' first coming seems to be the grounds, 
the foundation for an entire overhaul of our lives. Jesus' first coming seems to be just this, this foundational grounds for an entire overhaul of our lives. Let me put it to you this way. We don't just have forgiveness of sins in the first coming of Jesus. We have forgiveness of sins, and now we have the ability and the grace to say no to sin and to love the Father. The first coming of Jesus is not just the crushing of Satan, but the grounds and the grace to somehow not believe the lies of Satan and believe the truth of our Heavenly Father. The cross and the first coming of Jesus is the grounds for a holy life. Let me put it to you like this. I went to public school for kindergarten, first grade. I went to public school for eighth grade, twelfth grade, all the way to the twelfth grade. But I went to private school. Catholic school and a Christian school from second grade to seventh grade growing up in Dallas, Texas. Now, the rationale back then, I guess it would have been started in the late 70s into a little bit of the 80s. The rationale back then was that the environment in a private school is much better than the environment in the public school. And so the thinking back then was that if you take the kid that's a very troubled kid, the kid has a lot of problems... And if you take them out of the environment of this public school and you bring him into the environment of the um, private school where he's around, I guess, Christian environment, he's going to act better. But I can tell you for, for sure that is not necessarily all the case, always the case because you can have a kid who has a lot of trouble in the public school and you bring him over to the private school and he's still a punk. That was me. Didn't work. The idea is you just change environments, bam, it's going to change. That's not the way the Christian life works. It's not like, oh, isn't this great? Jesus, he just whipped Satan, he whipped sin, he took you out of Satan's family, and now you're in God's family, you changed environments, bam, you're better. We are not talking about a change in environment. That's part of it. But at the core, we're talking about a change in birth. We've been born of God, born of Him. When God was transferring us from the kingdom of darkness and the dominion of Satan to the kingdom of light, to the dominion of the Father, something changed within us. God came to dwell within us when the adoption proceedings were becoming finalized from this evil father, Satan, to our heavenly father who loves us, the Holy Spirit took up residence and changed us, altered us, moved our hearts to start to have these desires and affections for that which is good and right in our heavenly father. Something changed in us. It's not just be a good boy, be a good girl. We're talking about an entire alteration of our life. We've been born of God born of him that's a radical change change in birth not just environment and the grounds first coming of Jesus conquering sin conquering Satan the grounds of grace to walk in him praise God so he came the first time deal with sin Satan he's coming back again to take us with him the nowism, the gospel says, we are now children of our Father who walk in holiness. We want, as a church, to be about the gospel of Jesus 
and to live in it now. And as a, a corporate body coming up in eight weeks from today, we're starting these ethos communities that we've been talking about all summer. For those of you who are new, ethos communities going to be a group of 15 to 30 people meeting in homes throughout the area here. And all we're going to do is we're going to pray, fellowship with one another, get in the Word together, and we're going to go on mission together. And you know what we're going to study this fall? We're going to study something by this pastor in New York, Timothy Keller. He has something called gospel in life. That's perfect. And it's not that our ethos communities are going to do this nice little curriculum. No, the curriculum we're going to do is going to be about explaining our ethos communities, what we're all about. We're about the gospel in life. We're about the nowism of the gospel. As we live in between the two comings of Jesus, we live in the gospel now. What does that look like as a church? What does that look like as individuals to live in the gospel now? And we're going to talk about it. We're going to live in it. We're going to obey him. Because it matters. Especially when we have struggles. Especially when we have this great big hole in our gospel. Especially when we have a gap in the middle of our faith. Or we're lost in the middle of our faith. Just like that guy I told you about at the beginning of my sermon. Whose name was Jason. Who had a big hole in his gospel. And I want to end telling you about this Jason. I sometimes also have a big hole right in the middle of my gospel. If you want to say, what is one of the biggest things you struggle with? I would tell you, my brothers and sisters, I struggle with the fact that God loves me. I understand it intellectually. I can explain it theologically, but I have a hard time of living it out experientially. Is there anybody else like that? Does anybody else struggle with the fact that God loves you? That there really is nothing you can do to make him love you more. Like, God, watch this trick. Still love you the same. Go, oh, God, I just blew it. Still love you the same. And I, I struggle with that. I struggle understanding that and living in that. I, I get it here. I just want to get it here. I struggle with that. I'm a child of God. And, and at the end of our service today, we're going to sing this song. It's going to be the simplest song we probably have ever sang next to Jesus Loves Me. It's going to be this song called uh, How He Loves Us. And you go, it's just really strange that we just keep singing this over and over again. What's for people like me who need to be reminded. He loves me. I need to hear that again. He loves me. Okay, I need to hear that again. He loves me. And you go, but I, I doubt that. And if you doubt that Jesus loves you, if you doubt that the Father loves you, this is the perfect time to be reminded because you know what we're going to do? We're going to take the, Lord, the Lord's Supper. We're going to take communion. If you doubt that God loves you, look right at this bloody cross of Jesus Christ being sacrificed for our sins. And when you take communion this morning, may it be God shouting to you, I love you. I love you. And don't go, oh God, I'm just so unworthy. Look at me. Look at all of, don't even get your eyes off of you and put your eyes on Jesus and go, yes, you do love me. And so as we come to this time, the Lord's Supper, 
made it just awaken us, bring us alive to the reality that we are loved in Jesus. And may we live in the nowism of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, amaze us by your abundant grace and love that you have for us. We struggle knowing that you love us just abundantly and just impress that upon our hearts today, no matter what we're going through, no matter what our problems, that you love us through Jesus. And as we take this communion, may you awaken us, the Lord's over to how much you love us, that you love us so much that you would lay down your life for us. No greater love. Oppress it upon us, not just intellectually and, and theologically, but may we experience the love you have for us, the love you've lavished on us, the love of the Father has lavished on his children. May we not be this stern man or woman today. May we be what your word calls us, children, dependent children, looking for the love of our Father and receiving it through Jesus. Do something. Show your love to us right now through the cross of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.